1: Welcome and welcome back to the National Security Podcast Week. Gabrielle Knike with you taking over from Chris Farnham for this week. This is the second day of our Women in National Security Podcast series, and we will be with you every day this week with interviews and comments from some of the world's leading experts on a variety of national security topics. This week has a strong lineup of ladies, and they will be discussing everything from counter-terrorism to nuclear missile treaties to Indigenous participation in border security. If you don't have a ticket to the conference, then this is your only way to hear from some of the conference's world-leading guests. We have a jam-packed podcast for you today. Later, we have an interview with Nava Nurania, who specializes in the field of counter-terrorism in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. She'll tell us about women in terrorism, gender bias and financing, and freedom of expression in democratic elections. As you know, this is the first day of the Women in National Security Conference, so to start us off, we have Chris Farnham in conversation with Jacinta Carroll. You all know Chris as the presenter of our regular National Security Podcast, and Jacinta is the coordinator of this week's conference. She is also the director of the National Security College National Security Policy Branch, and she's going to give us an introduction to the event and its speakers.
2: G'day Jacinta, welcome to the National Security Podcast and especially welcome to this Women in National Security special. G'day
3: Chris and it's a pleasure to be with you today.
2: Now you are the convener of the Women in National Security Conference which is being held on the 24th and 25th of this month which is actually this week at the Hyatt Hotel and it's run from the National Security College where you are the Director of National Security Policy. You are the convener of the Women and National Security Conference for 2018. This is the second iteration of these conferences. Last year the conference focused on women as actors in the national security community, as well as recipients of policy decisions, national security policy decisions. Um, What is this year's conference uh, going to look at and what is the focus of this year's conference?
3: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Look, we're very excited at the National Security College and more broadly at the ANU that we're hosting this for a second time. The reason for hosting a conference in the first place, as you mentioned, our first one last year, was because As a college uh, working very closely with Australia's national security community, we saw and agreed with the push to be um, advocates of more diversity and a better approach to national security. And one of the things that was glaringly obvious from our perspective at the college was that most conferences on national security, defence, foreign affairs, most journal articles and so on were mostly uh, composed of men. But what we were seeing was a different picture. Uh, Certainly in my career and then in the college, we were seeing that there's a very diverse workforce, but women weren't necessarily being seen so much. Uh, It has taken some time for women to be in some of the, the more important leadership positions. And on occasion, while there are women in the in academic circles speaking about this, there were growing numbers, but not always getting a voice. The conference last year, as you mentioned, uh, looked at this in a couple of ways. And one was just to look around the academic and policy and research communities and say, well, who are the women who are role models for others who might want to get into this work or who can talk about Uh, what needs to be done to enhance diversity across the national security community. And certainly talking to leaders, whether it's the Secretary of Home Affairs, uh, the Directors-General of ASIO and ASIS and the Office of National Assessments, uh, the Chief of Defence Force, um, all men but all male champions of change who really wanted to change their own workforces. So it seemed a natural thing for the college to look around and say, well, we can help provide that voice. Interestingly, uh, when you look at the program from the 2017 conference, it, it, it's clear that there are women everywhere in this field. That they just possibly weren't being seen so much. Or as we've seen with some gender studies work, um, perhaps weren't comfortable pushing themselves forward as much. So it created an environment where women could talk about being women, um, perhaps some of the challenges and the opportunities they'd had, and also how the community is changing more broadly. So we had some extraordinary examples. Um, At the time, of course, we had uh, a foreign minister uh, and a a defence minister who were both female, and Maurice Payne, the minister for defence at the time, opened the conference. Uh, Senator Penny Wong, the opposition spokeswoman for, for foreign affairs, was a keynote speaker. So there were many great role models there. Um, and also we brought in academics who could talk about, well, what is the role of gender in this environment? Something that we weren't really seeing discussed in such a high profile way. We come to this year, of course, and uh, as we reflected upon uh, the conference last year, which was really a one-off uh, at the time there was an extraordinary sense of networking for women who were involved in national security, but also a great sense of men and women and others who just wanted to have more of this incredible atmosphere and energy. So it seemed pretty natural that we'd follow on uh, in 2018. And uh, now the ANU and NSC have made this a, a regular event
2: and uh, you've you've also mentioned male champions for change and it's it is notable looking at the program for this uh this year's conference that there are men involved in speaking roles and also as part of the conference and it's important um i remember some of the feedback from last year's conference it's important that this is not to be seen as just a place for women to get together and have their thing because it isn't their thing it's everybody's thing and and diversity is something for the whole community the whole national security community to focus on in saying that how have you seen uh the community, the national security community change throughout your career in terms of diversity and not just gender, but also age and culture and so on?
3: Well, firstly, that's a great point that you make about this conference being for everyone. And during my career, there's a, a few interesting observations I'd make a look at, and they're, they're not unique to me. There's a lot of literature that, that looks at the same things. But what we see is the national security community and the public sector that I've come from um, is one where... Um, like many professions, is one where there are equal numbers of women roughly um, studying in these areas. Uh, In terms of international relations, I think the most recent data is that there are more women on trend uh, studying in this area than there are men, and certainly we see that kind of demographic in our postgraduate courses here at the college. This correlates through to graduate and uh, entry-level jobs into into these communities and environments. But then something happens. And that's something, sometimes there is, there's life gets in the way of a clear upward trajectory or a clear neat path in a career and life can just be uh, having having a, a family and then trying to balance that with expectations uh, of a career where you don't necessarily have have time out. You've got to be there and be committed. Other times, though, perhaps there's just that that glass ceiling that that's been spoken of and written about so much. Where for some reason, if you don't look like those who are in charge, you just mightn't look like you're going to get up further. Some research that's been done in um, uh, senior levels in management, in corporations, and also in the military show that, uh, in general, you've got to be over six foot and male. Um, there, are, there are many more six foot tall men in positions of leadership because they kind of look like people that we thought we think look like leaders in a society like ours. Yeah, they tend to to look a bit waspish. Again, getting back to our our conference. Sometimes it's just about holding up someone who looks different to say, you know, you can have something, someone else there. Uh, Not just because they're different, that is helpful. The research again tells us that different ways of thinking will always give you some better outcomes. In my career, uh, I have seen that there's some quite significant change, at least over the last decade. I can remember... For the first part of my career, often being the only woman and, uh, because I started my career in, in defence as well, often the only civilian involved in some of the operations planning and, uh, uh, more strategic level work in defence that I was involved in. But now when I go to meetings, it's, um, it would be rare that there would be only one woman. We don't outnumber. Uh, men in those environments, typically. But there are some areas where where there is a, a dominance of women. Signals intelligence is one area where there's traditionally been a lot of women in the military, as well as more broadly. Uh, so there've been those pockets of change, um, what we see now, and again, coming back to our conference this year, the senior government official uh, who chairs the National Security College Board in the last couple of weeks um, has just been appointed a, a woman is in this role. We have previously had women in this role. Margot McCarthy uh, is notably one. Uh, we also have a number of female politicians in leadership positions who are involved in the conference.
2: Yeah, it's it, it reminds me of a conversation that I actually had with my own father this weekend. G'day, Dad. Um, that when you're creating pathways for uh, whether it be women or whether it be people from diverse gender groups or minority groups you have to they have to be able to see that there is a pathway and that there is a place for them to go into these groups and having conferences like these shows that there is a strong female presence and women's presence in the national security community and the people coming through now don't have to force their way in and they don't have to blaze a trail in. The trail has already been blazed and it's up to the community to show that it is a diverse workplace and that there are places and there is a requirement for for all... minority groups to be involved in this space and as I've mentioned in a previous podcast it's important to us it's not just an ethical issue it's a capabilities issue we have to have diverse perspectives working on strategy working on policy and doing analysis and collections and so on because if we only have a singular view we're going to have a very thin outcome and very thin and weak solutions as well so getting back to the conference there's a broad range of wonderful speakers at the this conference, and you can see them all on the website. Are there any particular highlights that you'll be looking forward to being involved in yourself with, Jacinta?
3: Well, a first for us is that uh, we have Chantelle de Jong Udraat out from the US. She's a Dutch American national. Chantelle is the president of Women in International Security Global. That's one of the trailblazing organisations for women who work in this area. So it's pretty exciting for us that she's coming out to offer her views and thoughts on this very issue. Uh, She'll also be doing a deep dive into the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which is an initiative of the United Nations that Australia is involved in. Uh, We also have Linda Reynolds, Senator Linda Reynolds, who's been newly appointed as Assistant Minister for Home Affairs and of core interest to the the topic at hand. She'll be talking about uh, the various elements of her portfolio. And of course, home affairs is a new beast on the Australian scene. And it covers not only traditional national security issues, but also uh, many criminal issues and matters and non-traditional issues, uh, piracy and so on. So it'll be really interesting to hear her take on this portfolio. And of course, she comes with an extraordinary depth of experience, both as a, a parliamentarian, a, um, a very active parliamentary committee member and uh, a former member of the army. So you know, a really, really interesting mix of perspectives. And she's our keynote speaker for the dinner. We have Julie Bishop, MP, member for Curtin and former foreign minister. Uh, she'll be appearing, which we're, we're delighted about we actively promote student involvement in our conference. We actually have a student panel that I'll talk about a little bit later if I'm allowed to. And also we have Madeline Creedon out, who's a former um, senior official in the US energy environment and specifically on their, in their nuclear administration. I,
2: I do see in my crystal ball maybe some questions going about recent decisions made in the White House in terms of uh, US nuclear security agreements and so on.
3: It's a fascinating time is isn't it, Chris? Yes, so we have uh, we have some really interesting insight there, and of course, uh, Madeline is someone who worked under the Trump administration. I mentioned, and if I if I may go into it a little bit more, one panel that we're very excited about is a group of young secondary students um, and undergraduate students from from ANU who'll be talking about the future workforce. Look, another one that's very dear to my heart is a story of something quite incredible that's been happening in Cape York in a small Aboriginal community partnering with the the local uh, army unit up there, um, 51st Far North Queensland Regiment. The the Woodjil Woodjil story, the Woodjil Woodjil Security Songlines is the session. We'll have the the CEO um, of the Woodjil Woodjil Aboriginal Shire Council together with the commanding officer of 51st FNQR talking about how this, I suppose, traditional slightly unusual army unit came together with a small Aboriginal community that was in trouble and trying to pick itself up. What I see when I uh, look at this community is a living, breathing example of social cohesion. It's, it's like the Holy Grail in countering violent extremism. How do you bring a community together? How do you build capacity and pride and ability in a community? And um, I've been there and I've, I've seen it in action. So that's something we're really, we're really looking forward to as well.
2: And I'm actually hoping to get them into the studio for a podcast as well. So that'll be great to hear their story. We
3: will corral them in for you, Chris.
2: Absolutely. Well, it's going to be a fantastic conference. It's a great lineup. And thanks for all of your efforts in putting it together. And thanks for coming in and chatting to us on the podcast
3: today. Thanks very much, Chris. (laughs)
1: That's all from Chris today, but Jacinta is back for the next segment and she is joined by Nava Nuranya from the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict in Jakarta. Before joining IPAC as an analyst in 2015, Nava worked at the Centre of Excellence for National Security in Singapore as a researcher on terrorism and radicalisation in Indonesia.
3: G'day and welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Jacinta Carroll of the Australian National University's National Security College and this is part of a special series of podcasts we're doing in association with the NSC's Women in National Security Conference for 2018. I'm from the National Security College as I mentioned and work on terrorism and counter-terrorism and other national security issues. But I'm here in conversation today with a very good friend who is an expert on terrorism and counter-terrorism in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. Nava Nurania. it's lovely to have you here. Um, would you just like to say hello and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Nava Nurania from the Institute
0: for Policy Analysis of Conflict, um, a research think tank in Jakarta.
3: Nava, I'd like to start talking with you about Indonesia's security environment, and particularly in relation to terrorism. Look, the rise of Jama'a Islamiyah and the terrible terrorist attacks of the early 2000s, such as the Bali bombings that we're all familiar with, they're very well known around the world. But... These occurred in a different environment and and almost two decades ago. It seems to me that that Indonesia is a very different place now. Could you talk us through the impact of this wave of terrorism on Indonesia and how Indonesia responded? Right. So in early 2000s, all the attacks, you know, the Bali bombings,
0: uh, there were two contexts I think that we have to remember. First is that we just had, you know, political instability because of the reformacy, the revolution. And also there was a sectarian conflict in Posto, Central Sulawesi and Ambon, so which became a training ground for Jama Islamiyah after they came back from, you know, Afghanistan and training in the Philippines. So that conflict uh, really was the reason why Jama Islamiya uh, was able to recruit and train men in such a way that w-
3: can't happen today. So, in response to those um, the, the successful attacks of Ji and others in the early two thousands, really the Indonesian government's counterterrorism response was pretty successful, wouldn't you say? Since then, in nullifying that and and the other sectarian issues.
0: Yes, I think uh, the the government especially after they formed the counterterrorism police, the Mm. Densus 88. They were quite successful in preventing and stopping attacks, but preventing extremist ideology or radicalization is another problem, Mm. which I think we could still do better.
3: How much of a factor do you think historic grievances are and sectarian identity? There are so many different... Uh, ethnic groups and cultures in the the great nation of Indonesia. How many grievances do you think are still there for extremist groups to take advantage of?
0: Well, historical grievances, especially Islamic uh, State, you know, why Indonesia was not an Islamic state. It was more relevant during the Darul Islam era, but I don't think it plays such a big role um, today because what they want is not an Islamic State in Indonesia. They were more in- influenced by the you know, the global uh, ideology of um, like ISIS, where they they don't want a state, but a borderless uh, caliphate around the world. Um, so I think there's, you know, the, the, the Syria conflict since 2011, it gave them a new impetus. Um, now they not only have a new um, cause, which is establishing the Islamic State there in Syria and with all the end of the world narrative and so that has been their their the focus since then.
3: We've also seen in Indonesia, like Australia, that the recent conflict, uh, and again, that that rise of ISIS just in the last four years or so, uh, attracted foreign fighters into the Middle East, and there have been varying estimates. Um, can you talk through the impact of ISIS? And what we're seeing in terms of foreign fighters, what has been that impact of ISIS?
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that there is more pull factor from Syria rather than push factor that, you know, drive them out of their countries. In Indonesia, now we have democracy, people are free to, mostly free to express their views. Mm -hmm. So it's different from the JI era in the 90s, even 80s. where these groups were, were repressed and then they uh, they went to exile in Malaysia and, uh, and they, they went to train in Afghanistan. Now, it's not the push factor, but the pull factor of the ISIS, so-called global caliphate ideology that that drove them to go. And what's the impact? Now, We the police estimate is about 600 to 1,000 Indonesians going over to Syria. But interestingly, not all of them were fighters, because a lot of them went as family units, so women, children, and even infants, you know, going to uh, to Syria. And um, now that, that motivation of going to Syria to witness the end of the world and to mm-hmm. fight uh, there, I think that we should consider it uh, in whether, you know, they're going to return or not. Because if their purpose was to be there, you know, at the end of the day, then it's it's unlikely that, you know, they would flock back into Indonesia. I think the most committed ones would want to stay. Mm-hmm. So even the, you know, last year, we had some 18 returnees, uh, mm-hmm. they, they were mostly disillusioned. So it's yeah mostly just these disillusioned people who wanted to um, come back. Whereas uh, I think another category that is also important is deportees, meaning Indonesians who tried to go over to Syria but were stopped and deported from Turkey mostly.
3: it's a lot uh, of that yeah.
0: happening with Southeast Asians, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. and almost 80% of them, mm. of the deportees, were women and children.
3: Oh, really? That's a very high percentage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, because you go to motivation and a lot of the – um, I suppose that the simpler popular understanding of foreign fighters is exactly that, that they are committed, uh, violent, um, passionately motivated fighters going off to fight a holy war and forgetting that uh, sometimes the religious motivation and the social and community motivation is just as strong. But very interesting, uh, the the family units, in the Australian experience, mostly it's been single young men. Um, a very small number of, of women usually going because they were they were married. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the role of women in terrorism. And uh, you are one of the few re- researchers who's actually examined in some depth the modern role of women in Southeast Asia who are involved in terrorism. And uh, it strikes me when I've been researching this as well that often there, there is that extreme still of women being described either, either as only passive partners. It's interesting from a gender studies point of view, because you often see a bit of a feminist reaction to say, no, no, they're not just there as wives and girlfriends or mothers. These are active women undertaking this involvement with their own agency. And I know from my work, the the truth is somewhere in the middle. uh, And it certainly varies depending on the group. What are some of the insights that you found in your research? And And I'd also like to ask, are there any myths that you'd like to bust on air about the role of women in terrorism? Yeah,
0: first of all, I think most studies on gender and terrorism took place in the Middle East or African countries where there was conflict, like the Boko Haram women were raped or, you know, um, they had this revenge. But in Indonesia, because we don't have that kind of... Conflict and Muslim are not minority. In fact, we're the majority. So there's the di- different dynamics there. Mm-hmm. First of all, most of the Indonesian women who uh, join extremist groups did so voluntarily. Mm-hmm. They were not caused, They were not being raped uh, or forced um, into joining. So yeah, there was an you know some kind of agency that women have when they before they join terrorist groups. Um, and and also I think the the myth around how uh, women in in terrorist groups can't you know, play any active role is also wrong because even once they're inside, there's still room for negotiation especially with the internet, you know. So in the past, they had they had to go through the organizational hierarchy mm-hmm. to do something. They need to get permission from the male leaders. But now with the um, internet, social media, they can put together their own team or cell mm-hmm. and they could fund. This happened when we had Indonesian migrant workers in Hong Kong, for example, who were earning more money than, you know, average Indonesian women. And they were financing
3: uh, terrorist training mm-hmm. and... You know plots back home this is an interesting phenomenon isn 't it because we 've seen the rise of um, these great enablers across all of society that we that we have through the internet, through global communications, and so on. But there is this enabler, very strong enabler in terms of recruiting, managing websites, facilitating funds, and so on, and women have played a very important role there, social media being another part of spreading the word. Um, you and I have spoken a couple of times when we've seen each other recently about the extraordinary events in Surabaya early this year. Now you, you and your colleague Sidney Jones have um done probably some of the most detailed research and analysis into this. And your your analysis is a little bit different from the certainly the headlines around the time saying here's yet another ISIS terrorist attack. Um, but it was pretty horrific, wasn't it, seeing Um, children being used as suicide bombers, entire families uh, killing themselves in the name of of this movement. Can you talk us through your your views on this, what happened? Yeah, so
0: the Surabaya attacks,
3: uh, it was
0: horrific, not just in Indonesia, but I think also worldwide because of, you know, it was the first time that the whole family actually did a you know, not just one bombing, but three bombings. And there were three families in Surabaya doing different bombings. So it was it was quite a shock. Um,
3: and, well, many, well, and many children and families yeah, yeah. killed. Ch- children involved, yeah, children uh, were involved
0: as well. But no, uh, well, actually, well, the, the Surabaya families were part of the, you know, the Jama'an Saru Dawala, the JID network mm-hmm. in Indonesia. This is one of the pro-ISIS networks in Indonesia. Actually, they were quite free to plan their own attacks. So there's no... Direct instruction or money. There's no evidence that the, the, the resources came from Syria. It was mostly on their own, and I don't think it's going to be a major trend of you, you know using family, whole family, to do bombing. Uh, not least because there's still huge debate within the extremist community about whether children are allowed um, or whether children uh, are, are obliged to fight in war. Uh, and there's even still controversy about the role of women, mm-hmm. you know, let alone um, children. So um, and it was mostly because of, you know, they, 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 they sort of combined the ISIS narrative uh, of the end of the world with conspiracy theory so they you know this is they knew the exact date or they they thought they knew the exact date when the doomsday was going to happen and they want to die before um you know uh, this big meteorite was supposedly going to hit the earth so i haven't seen any other ice networks you know uh, having such a particular belief
3: so this does seem to have happened in a bubble from yeah. from what we've seen for for the three families yes yeah. so it, it's a One of the things that keeps coming up in terms of terrorist attack is that community members, uh, governments to say, well, well, what can we do? How can you defend against a a family that decides to do this or a small group of families who are connected? And perhaps from what you're saying, well, you can't defend against it because it's not going to – it doesn't look like it's something that has been industrialised. It's not a major movement. This is just something that that a small number of people decided to do um, in the way that we see with other other terrible crimes. Moving into our region, there's one thing that's really struck me, and again, you and I have spoken about this, that much of the focus in the past few years has, of course, been understandably on the Middle East. But people like you and I and others that we work with kept saying, well, you know, they're looking for new safe havens to move to, and they may even look to come to the Indo-Pacific, maybe even Southeast Asia, our neighbourhood. It's now the anniversary of the liberation of Marawi in, in the southern Philippines, uh, where there was this extraordinary surprise attack on a major city. That's been defeated for now. But what do you think the impact is of this manifestation of ISIS-aligned groups who may even not be... Muslim activist groups. There are there are a variety. There were some Marxist Leninist ones. You know, I know in the in the Filipino circumstances, um, on our region. I mean, do, is this something that could happen again? And probably most importantly, what what should we in our region be doing to try and prevent this?
0: Yeah. Well, Marawi. Um a lot of people thought that Marawi would be the new Syria yeah. Yeah. Um, but that that really hasn't happened yeah. uh, even ISIS at the, yeah, I mean at the height yeah. of of the Marawi conflict you know there, there were only about 20 Indonesians there so it wasn't as popular a destination as Syria one because you know there is no religious narrative that they could use to promote the Marawi battlefield yeah. whereas the Syria when there were a lot of Hadis there that they, they misuse and misinterpret. Um, so Marawi is one issue that the Philippines, you know, government uh, and security sector and NGOs should do in terms of juridicalizing de- the youth because there were a lot of young people who were uh, recruited by the Maute group. But, you know, uh, more broadly in the region, well, at least the good news is that, for example, in Indonesia, political instability is the most important thing so we're going to have the election next year as long as we can, you know, maintain this political stability. It's, it's, it's good uh, for preventing violent extremism. But on the other hand, I think that there could also be more role for, you know, NGOs, um, especially when we know, I mean, you can't, you can't prevent a whole society, um, but you can at least identify vulnerable groups, So, for example, deportees. Returnees. Mm-hmm. At least we know some of these people and we can do something about that. Um, uh, and, for example, vulnerable groups like migrant workers. Mm-hmm. I think that the government in Indonesia and also in the host countries are already doing um, something for that. And the other thing we have to anticipate is in terms of the return of foreign fighters uh, is the intermarriages that happen in Syria. Mm-hmm. So these international fighters and women, you know, and other Professionals who came to Syria, they they married there and had children. So it's um you know it doesn't have to be in the Philippines. They can they can go back to any other uh, any number of countries uh, where they're from, where the wives or the husbands um, came from. So it's again strengthening law enforcement. For example, in in Indonesia, our previous counterterrorism law. Did not address the issue of foreign fighters, but now we have amended and now we can. Uh, the police can charge people for participating in foreign conflict. Just strengthening the legal instruments first, I think it's it's a good thing.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been so much work done over the over the past few years in trying to fix uh, the counterterrorism legislation in Indonesia, and it was interesting to see um, the despite the many setbacks. That legislators had had in trying to put these things into place, that President Jokowi ensured that this came up uh, in the aftermath of Surabaya and said, "Well, oh, this is why." Yeah, so that was why the biggest we have impact to do this. The and, yeah. Surabaya bombing. Getting into that that sort of international piece again, one of the interesting things from Marawi is the way that Indonesia and Australia, in particular, led a Southeast Asian regional approach to ensure that all of our countries were talking about this problem. Um, how do we? address this? How do we stop the flow of money? So there's a very strong and important role for governments to work together to stop that free movement of money by criminals.
0: Yeah. And and if you talk about terrorist financing, I think the role of women is still overlooked, even though, I mean, we know that the, it was the women's bank accounts that are always again and again used for this money transfer for terrorist activities. But um, I think our law enforcement agencies are still... I mean they're already aware of the you know the role of women, but you know how to respond to it in terms of you know interrogation debriefing there's still sometimes gender biases that work uh actually for the advantage of 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 the women
3: yeah and and criminals and terrorists yeah. will always look exactly. for the the vulnerabilities of the other side, uh, but also, as you said, it goes to perhaps an unconscious bias about what women might be doing your your work for IPAC, the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict, uh, like the National Security College, is very much focused on providing policy. Are there any insights you could offer from your research about some of the, the key things that at a community level and at a government level, our countries, our region should be doing to counter terrorism and to counter violent extremism? And and in that, I'm quite interested in what doesn't work.
0: Yeah. So the, the there are many NGOs that have done, for example, giving financial aid to um, the family or the wives of terrorist detainees. Yeah. And um, we don't know yet how effective this strategy is. But I think for, for that, you need transparency. Otherwise, you are just financing terrorist members, right? Um, so there, there, is, there needs to be some kind of transparency and also mentoring. So this So, I mean, we're still talking about de-radicalization, not even the prevention one, yeah? Mm -hmm. So because terrorist inmates, even though in Indonesia, for example, the rate of recidivism is still below 10%, but whenever there is a terrorist inmate involved in an attack, it's always... A lot bigger than you know other attacks, so I think it's it's very important that we address this issue, not just giving fam, uh, you know business loan or uh, but but also thinking how this uh, money can be used as a way for a sustainable mentoring program, not just for the men, the husbands, but also the entire family, because as we realize that you know radicalization happens now in the family setting rather than individual one, and. Um, and the so other,
3: yeah. I was going to say, so in that, in that, what you're saying is, after the good idea, we need to have a an implementation plan. It needs to be comprehensive, and we also need to be able to evaluate that. Yes, and that's so difficult in this space, but but there needs to be that to to ensure there's a link between what we've done and the effect that it's had on the problem.
0: Yeah, and I mean the government can't do it alone. You know, they need to. Um social workers, either from government or non-government organizations, and the sustainable mentoring program, that's what we need. Because, mm-hmm. for example, the case that happened in, in central Sulawesi, in, you know, the Santosos group, they were given aid, and they were even given jobs, but they used it to regroup uh, yeah. because there was no monitoring and sustainable mentoring. So now I think they have learned the the police in, in Poso, for example, the local police uh, actually design um, economic Program that so they don't give the money straight to the detainees or their families, but through a business mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, So, which is you know more, I think, transparent, Mm -hmm. and also it's it's also there is a transfer of skills as well to the detainees and the families. And in terms of um, prevention, one thing that's become the problem in Indonesia and I think Australia and elsewhere is that. This problem of conflating conservatism with extremism, yes. which you should not do because then you alienate a whole group of people which could be partners in, in these efforts.
3: I have to just then ask another question i <laughs> sure. we're going to follow up because we, of course, have the presidential election coming up and uh, all eyes will be on Indonesia focusing on the elections and the rise of conservative Islamic groups in Indonesia's political system has really captured the attention of political analysts can you talk through the that relationship between Islam um, conservative Islam as you've as you've described Indonesian politics and we know how complicated that is but just touching on that and violent extremism and Is there a relationship? Is there something that we should be worried about? Um, And we're looking at potentially having a a very conservative um, cleric as the vice president of Indonesia.
0: Well, in Indonesian context, uh, I think most of the groups are still legal. So um, political Islam uh, is a lot bigger in Indonesia than extremism. Extremism is still the fringe. Mm-hmm. And political Islam is not necessarily a dangerous thing for the state. Um, now, it, now it, it's all changed, because, you know, two years ago, we had this massive Islamist mobilization to bring down the Jakarta governor, Ahok, who was a double minority. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this alliance between Islamists and the opposition parties, mm-hmm. opposition leaders, and also there's Agencies such as the, the, you know, Indonesian Ulama Council, um, that sort of made a lot of people nervous. Many people could not differentiate between this Islamist opposition and extremism, and that they think that intolerance necessarily leads to terrorism, which is not true. It's not based on on evidence. Now, mm-hmm. I think uh, it's it's important to protect the freedom of expression uh, because otherwise, this if you just ban, you know, this. Groups, uh, opposition groups, Islamists, or not, they would just um, you know either go underground or you would increase to their grievances, because if if you see that Islamist mobilization, the two one two movement, ISIS, it was not involved whatsoever in that political mobilization. However, some pro Al Qaeda jihadi groups like Jama'at Saudi Sharia uh, were involved, uh, and in fact they they had since JI um, withdrew from violence in. 2007, uh, some of these pro-Al-Qaeda groups had, had formed tactical alliance with Islamists as a strategy because they know that, that violence couldn't buy Muslim support. It, you know, people hated them because uh, they committed all these bombings. So they changed their strategy and uh, allied more with the political Islam groups. But, but that shouldn't trick us. You know, we should yes. still be able to tell the difference whether this is, you know, extremist or um, Islamists that still work within the corridor of democracy
3: and... and You know, legal framework. Well, Nava, I think that's a perfect time to finish our our conversation. We've had a very rich discussion around um, the diversity and the history of terrorism and countering terrorism in Indonesia, Australia, and Southeast Asia. And I love it that we started really with terrorist attacks and we've ended on freedom and democracy uh, and freedom of expression and association, which is really the the perfect counterpoint. Nava Nurnia, Nir- it is an absolute pleasure to have you here for our conference. My pleasure. And thank you very much for speaking to us today on the National Security Podcast. You're welcome.
1: That's all for today. If you have any comments about this or any of our podcasts, feel free to get in touch and hit us up on Twitter using apps policy form or on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society, or on email using podcast at policyforum.net. And while there, whack that subscribe button and throw us a rating. That's all for now. We'll see you tomorrow.